Unplugged In podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In podcast. I'm Jordan McGillis. And I'm Alex Stevens. Today we're joined by Isaac Orr. Isaac is a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment, where he writes about energy and environment issues, including mining and electricity policy. Prior to joining the Center of the American Experiment, he was a research fellow at the Heartland Institute, and prior to that, he served as an aide in the Wisconsin State Senate. Isaac, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, let's open things up by having you tell our listeners about the Center of the American Experiment. It's a fascinating name for a think tank. What's behind that, and what are your guiding principles? So we are Minnesota's free market conservative think tank. We've been in existence since 1990. And really what we we like about our our name is it kind of gives us a national sound. Basically, America is a giant experiment and every state government has their own ability to tinker with what works and what doesn't. So what we want to do is we want to promote solutions that work for Minnesota. And um, that's that's the name. Don't wear it out. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role as a policy fellow there Um, and just talk a little bit about some of the energy issues that you see going on in Minnesota? I know. How's the experiment going in your state? My role at the the center is uh, to look at mining policy specifically. We have the world's largest undeveloped deposits of copper and nickel um, in the northern part of the state. So my first role with the center, uh, I joined in the March of 2018. Uh, was to write a paper kind of detailing that. But now I'm moving more into energy policy in the state. So Minnesota was one of the first states to adopt a renewable energy mandate. We have a 25% mandate by by 2030. And now with the the elections that happened uh, just recently for the midterms, uh, we have uh, probably a mandate for 50% renewable by 2030 coming down the pipe at some point here. So uh, my goal is just to educate the the people of Minnesota and nationally why this is a very expensive goal uh, that will probably not accomplish much in terms of environmental benefits. I had the midterms on my topic list uh, down toward the bottom, but why don't we pop this right in here? Um, what happened in Minnesota uh, at the state level, and and why don't you tell us about the positions uh, of people going to Washington as well? Yeah, absolutely. So Minnesota was interesting in that there was no national blue wave, but in terms of the uh, Minnesota House of Representatives, there definitely was. So a lot of the uh, suburban districts that were formerly held by Republicans are now held by Democrats. And Minnesota traded two seats. It was a net zero for both parties, but the suburbs, uh, two Republican incumbents lost. Uh, Eric Paulson and Jason Lewis lost their races, but um, rural Minnesota picked up two Republicans, Pete Sauber and Jim Hagedorn in the first district. So we were basically just a, a reflection of uh, national trends in terms of suburban voters going for, for Democrats now. So um, that's that's the case. And in terms of energy policy, it means that we're going to probably have a lot more renewable energy mandates. Is the Minneapolis-St. Paul area something of a blue island in the state, or is that not um, the way things shake out there? Yeah, it's a lot like Illinois, um, where you have blue Chicago and the rest of the state is pretty red. Um, That wasn't how it always was. Minnesota's Democratic Party is actually called the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. And I think just by virtue of the name sounding like they care about um, rural Minnesota, they were able to hold on longer than the Democrats in most other parts of 
you know, the, the rural Midwest, but there's definitely been a realignment here now. Yep. Reflecting what we've seen across the country, it sounds like. Yep, absolutely. Um, so how about that renewable energy mandate? What are the specifics there? So the renewable energy mandate in Minnesota is is really bad in terms of what resources it allows. Uh, the um, We have a lot of large hydro that is coming in from Canada just because we're so close to Manitoba that does not satisfy the requirement. So we actually have to build more wind and solar than uh, than we would normally have to based on the you know the actual well is this renewable or not Minnesota also has a one and a half percent solar standard so we have to get one and a half percent of our electricity from solar uh, even though we have a you know a general capacity factor of about fifteen and a half percent for our solar panels here so solar is an awful investment in Minnesota um, so wind actually makes up the most of our uh, renewable portfolio. Are you suggesting that solar is not an abundant resource in the northern uh, portion of the United States? I am going to dare to, to assert that, especially when, you know, the, the, the idea that solar is a good idea in a place where snow covers the ground uh, for about five or six months of the year is should be common sense. But people are like, oh, you can just put heaters in it. And like that's true, but it's also parasitic load. So the the actual amount of electricity that you're getting from solar in Minnesota is really not worth the investment. So these uh, these mandates, um, from my understanding, they come out of the Next Generation Energy Act of 2007 in your guys' state. Can you talk a little bit about the emissions reduction goals that were set there, and then? Just what impact has all this had on uh, energy prices in the state and how has it impacted consumers in the state? They wanted an 80% reduction in CO2 emissions uh, going into the future. That was that was not binding. There wasn't a, a statute that said you have to do that, but they are trying to reduce um, the, the CO2 emissions by 2050, uh, a substantial amount. And, but this isn't so much a CO2 um, measure as it is a renewable energy measure. Um, there was aspirational, which is the the word I was looking for earlier, uh, reductions of CO two. But uh, this was this was passed right when um, George Bush, a few years after George Bush came out and said, you know, we're addicted to oil, uh, and oil prices were pretty high. So this was Minnesota's attempt to try and stimulate uh, an energy sector in within the state's borders that hadn't existed previously. Minnesota doesn't have deposits of oil, natural gas, or coal. Uh, so when we were importing most of our electricity in the form of, you know, we're either buying it from coal-fired power plants in North Dakota or importing a lot of coal from Wyoming, a lot of people were thinking, well, you know, this is how Minnesota helps us become energy independent. Um, but it's had a disastrous impact on electricity prices. Uh, our Residential electricity prices have increased about 26% faster than the national average since 2007, and our industrial electricity prices have increased 33% faster. So it, it has just been really bad, and it's going to probably get worse. It's almost as if comparative advantage is an important economic principle. Yeah, but don't tell the <laughs> don't tell the other side that. So wrapped up in all this is uh, is 
the retirement of certain uh, types of power plants, specifically coal-fired power plants in Minnesota. Uh, back when you were still working at, uh, at Heartland, you wrote a paper on the effect of retiring coal power plants prematurely, the effect of that on reliability and affordability. Can you just outline the arguments that you made in that paper and talk a little bit about your concerns there? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a firm believer that you wear jeans until you can't wear them anymore. Um, and I feel like that's how we should be with power plants. A lot of these power plants, a coal-fired power plant can generate electricity for you know 50 to 80 years. And when you buy a house, right, you've got a mortgage. But as soon as you pay off that mortgage, it becomes a lot cheaper to live in that house because you're not paying the mortgage payment. You're not paying the um, the interest on that mortgage. So when we build these power plants, it's kind of the same thing. They have financing costs that are built into the cost of the electricity. And as you pay that off over time, the, the cost of the electricity to produce goes down per megawatt hour. So we have these old power plants that are essentially depreciated. So this is the sweet spot for the consumer where it costs the least amount of money to produce this electricity but now we're shutting these down before consumers get to realize the full benefits of this. And that's a real problem because not only are we shutting down these really efficient paid for power plants, but we're replacing them with wind, solar, and then equal parts natural gas because you have to have backup generation. Does this have anything to do with the phenomenon described as gold plating? Yeah, it does. I call it green plating. Okay. Um, just because that is the new the new fun thing. And I don't know if your your listeners are familiar with, with, with gold plating, but essentially during the seventies a lot of power companies realized, well, we can have really plush offices. Uh, we can basically spend a lot of money because we're a regulated utility and therefore we are guaranteed to make a profit on whatever we spend. So it became a spend more, make more uh type of mindset. So we built a whole bunch of power plants we did not need. And that's exactly what we're doing now, only it's under the guise of doing it for the environment. So we're building a bunch of uh, wind plants and solar plants that we don't need. Electricity demand in Minnesota has been stagnant since 2007. So we're basically erecting very expensive hood ornaments on the top of a power grid that's basically supplied by nuclear coal and natural gas. In the paper that I mentioned before, you discussed how this has played out in Australia. Could you talk about the issues that they've run into there, the impact that it had on Australia's energy grid? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Australia used to have some of the lowest electricity prices in the world, and it was because they realized we have boatloads of coal underneath our feet. Let's burn it. Let's do it efficiently. And then they decided that they were going to do things like have a national carbon tax and have a renewable energy uh, target. And um, what this did was it just increased the amount of intermittent renewables on the grid, particularly so or particularly wind, especially in South Australia. So Australia is shutting down their reliable coal-fired power plants and they're replacing them with intermittent sources. And the the problem they're running into is they don't have an abundant natural gas supply like we do here in the United States. Uh, Australia is a large producer of natural gas, but they export a lot of that. So what happened in Australia is there was a shortage of gas because they were exporting it to places like China, and then the power prices were spiking. Uh, I was reading an article just the other day about a aluminum smelting plant in Australia that was originally paying about $50 per megawatt hour for electricity, 
Now on the open market, they're having to field bids for $150 per megawatt hour. So these large industrial consumers in Australia who were originally planning to try and move production from China back over to Australia are really reevaluating those plants. And a lot of it's just because it's expensive to have backup generation um, running on standby in case the wind isn't blowing. Can you explain why they don't just use that natural gas that they're exporting? So they are using more of it now. Uh, they actually passed export restrictions. Uh, they have to uh, make sure that the domestic market is satisfied. But that's really a Band-Aid on a, on a hemorrhaging wound because the reason that those natural gas um, producers were exporting it was because it fetched a better price. Mm -hmm. So I think short term, it's a Band-Aid. Long term, it probably reduces the investment to or the, the incentive to invest in natural gas in Australia. So your concerns about our markets here in America seem to be that the mixture of subsidies and regulations um, at some point is going to break down the ability of, of energy markets in America to coordinate, and you're going to see the problems that they've run into Australia where they have blackouts and things. Um, somebody who's skeptical of that argument might say, well, Renewable mandates and these regulations that we've put on coal power plants and different fossil fuels and things, they've been around for a while now. So why haven't we seen the, uh, the problems that you're personally concerned about here? Well, I would argue we already have. Uh, if you look at California, they have one of the most aggressive renewable energy mandates in the state. And now they're issuing reliability must run contracts to natural gas plants. So essentially, Everyone who was like, oh, well, the Trump administration with their bailout for coal and nuclear plants to provide capacity when we need it is already happening in California with their gas producers because they need it uh, when the when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. So we already have a system where electricity prices in the Golden State are skyrocketing and their reliability and affordability is already being compromised. And the only reason it hasn't been to a further extent is because they're handing out these, I don't know, if you want to call them subsidies or payments to natural gas plants to remain online in case they need it. But that's already happening. The problem with capacity or with markets in terms of um, electricity like PJM and that stuff is it doesn't build in um, or compensate generators that have firm capacity. It just says, well, what can you give me right now? So over the long term, when we have these subsidies like the wind production tax credit that allows these uh, wind producers to always bid their product into the um, into the grid, it does not provide enough revenue or incentive for these dispatchable power plants or nuclear power plants to to stay uh, stay afloat. So we're basically going to have to subsidize them anyway in the future. Um, so. At some point, we're going to end up subsidizing everything unless we decide to subsidize nothing. I may be misinterpreting, but it sounds as if you might view the uh, proposal from DOE for guarantees to coal and nuclear somewhat favorably. You know, I don't know. You know, I don't have a firm opinion on that either way. I would prefer it if we just said, you know what, let's get rid of the, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, and let's actually have some sort of real equal market. Um, but the thing is, again, you don't have, you, you need a capacity system. You need to make sure that you have enough capacity online. And 
you know, I don't know if I agree with uh, the requirements for a fuel secure 90 days of supply on hand. Like that's all something I haven't looked into enough to have a firm opinion either way. But we're going to have to do it eventually and it'll probably be a gas plant. So I guess my my thought process is we're either going to be pre- pre- set, handing out these payments to coal and nuclear plants that already exist and therefore we may be able to cut cost in terms of um, the the firm supply. It So it goes back to that whole, the older plants have more of their capital costs paid off. So maybe they're cheaper to run an existing plant rather than having to make these same capacity payments to a new gas plant. So I think when we're looking at the costs and benefits associated with this policy, we should try to figure out what the least cost one would be. Um, and obviously, number one on my list is get rid of the the wind and solar subsidies and let's see how this shakes out. But, you know, absent that, I mean, maybe we have a chance at that now that Chuck Grassley isn't the swing vote. Um, but it's it's a tough situation. It's not black and white. I think we take a somewhat harder line on that. Alex, you've done some work on this. You want to comment on what you've what you've thought through on it? Well, he's he's right. It's not it's not a black and white issue. We're basically placed in a situation where if we introduce subsidies to coal and nuclear plants, you you open up a whole new round of sort of moral hazard problems. Um, but at the same time, you're put in a position where we could run into problems of reliability with the grid and emergency situations like that have never been great for uh, for free markets or you know, a, a avoiding regulation. So it it really does become a very complex question. My opinion is very similar to uh, what Isaac sort of outlined there, that, in that I'd like to see just the removal of regulations, removal of the production tax credits for renewables, um, and have a real market here. But uh, if that's politically not possible, then it, it, it really does become a very complicated question and um, it'll be interesting to see how that discussion plays out over over the next couple of years i live in a state that has a regulated you know top-down utility market so for for us what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to convince legislators and the public utility commission and basically anyone who will listen that we should be running these big efficient coal-fired power plants until they're no longer the most efficient sources of electricity and i think that's really what the the main crux of my my argument with the the premature retirement of coal-fired power plants was if it makes sense to continue to use an asset that we've already bought and paid for until it doesn't make sense anymore so i think that that is really the the only way that we're going to be able to stem some of this bleeding when it comes to the high cost of rate of return uh, regulation for the wind i mean they're guaranteed to make a profit on every dollar that they spend on infrastructure so yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, if we could get rid of the federal subsidies, it would go a long way towards restoring sanity in the energy markets. And when we talk about going back to your question about the renewable energy mandates and the subsidies, it's the dose that makes the poison, right? I mean, Tylenol is good for you until it isn't. Um, and we've, we're rapidly hitting that point to where these market distortions are getting to the point to where it's really interfering with the ability of baseload plants to operate efficiently and economically. So we're it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't know exactly what it takes in order to get people to realize that 
we are not doing a smart thing with our energy policy right now, but I don't know. It's probably blackouts. How do you see carbon tax legislation playing into all this? You know, the people who say that they they will take a revenue neutral carbon tax and get rid of all these regulations and just let it play out. I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I really don't. So I think that a carbon tax, you know, Minnesota is one of the few states in the country that has a social cost of carbon attached to its utility planning. So we already have a stealth carbon tax is what I call it. Um, so, I mean, it'll it'll just I don't think it's going to gain traction anywhere. Um, if Washington State can't pass it, then who's going to pass it? But um, I think that the people who are going around, especially those like phony conservative groups going around saying that, oh, all we need is a carbon tax and dividend and that's going to save everything. I think that's wish casting. I think ultimately what we need to be doing is telling these these people who care about CO2 if you care about this, then you need to go nuclear. You need something that's reliable and uh, can provide energy around the clock. Otherwise, you are just putting expensive and not very useful hood ornaments on a fossil fuel power grid. Well, that's a pretty strong and convincing argument right there. And that comports with uh, what we've been talking about. We just put out a paper last week that evaluates the, the tax and dividend sort of approach. It's called uh, the carbon tax and analysis of six scenarios. Um, and our readers can find that on our website, of course. And Isaac, I would um, love if you would give that a look and, and um, maybe if you commented comment on it or let us know what you think, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go, uh, just for our listeners, if we have anybody in Minnesota who uh, wants to learn a little bit more about your work, where can they find you? Absolutely. It's at AmericanExperiment.org. Great. Our guest today has been Isaac Orr. Isaac, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It was awesome.